You know, one of, one of the things I love about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it's so much bigger than just us here. Uh, it's so much bigger uh, than just the United States. It is a global faith. And uh, we see God doing amazing things all over the world. This morning, we actually have some guests with us that are just wonderful, wonderful people. Mike and Maria Long are pastors in Greece. Now, as soon as I say Greece, I know some of you are beginning to feel a call, right? Yes. Uh, but Maria is here with us. She's sitting right here. Her niece is there with her as well. But with both of you staying, would you please give them a big hand? No. After the service, you can go out underneath the missions wall, just straight uh, out back and be able to meet them. So Luke 16, uh, I hope you have a Bible. The words will not appear on the screen. And, uh, but I want to back up just a little bit to this past Wednesday night. You know that we're in a study, uh, studying the life of Jesus over this year. In the last six months, we're spending all those six months in the Gospel of Luke. In this past week, we were looking uh, earlier in, in uh, Luke 16, 1 through 13, where Jesus tells a parable, the parable of the shrewd manager. And after he tells that parable, he gives us three truths about faithfulness, okay? And in those three truths, he's speaking to his disciples, he gives those three truths, and then he gives a, a summary statement, if you will. And I want to back up to verse 10 and look at those real quick. In verse 10, Jesus says, three statements about faithfulness, the one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And right there we see Jesus calling us to realize that we're called to be faithful in the small things. And the promise that he gives us is that when we're faithful in the small things, he will give us more. He will give us bigger things, bigger tasks. He'll increase our calling, if you will, for us to accomplish those things. But it starts with faithfulness in the small things. So many times when we think about serving God or serving the church or even serving society, we think, I want to start big. I want a big title. I want something big to accomplish, but what Jesus teaches us is that we have to start small and show our faithfulness there. And then he tells us in verse 11, if then you have been faithful, there's the word again, in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? He says, if you've not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And again, there he's making a very clear point. He says, how can you handle deep spiritual truth? How can you handle a heavenly inheritance if you can't even be faithful with unrighteous wealth, with earthly wealth? Then he says in verse 12, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And again, there's a lot going on there, but he's saying, if you haven't been faithful, if you can't be faithful with, with what God has given you, because we believe everything comes from God, right? Every good and perfect gift is from above, Scripture says. So everything that's good in our life that we have, every blessing that we have, God has brought it into our life for us to steward while we were here on the earth. And if we can't steward what God has given us here on the earth, again, how can we receive something for our own? How can we receive a heavenly inheritance? And then he gives a summary. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve God and money. God and money. And just so you know, this is one of those sermons where I tend to not get a lot of amens. But Jesus is making some very important statements here about faithfulness. He's saying faithfulness is not about feelings. 
Faithfulness is about service. And service is not a title, it's an action word. And the heart of service is about stewardship, stewarding those things that God has given you, whether it be much or whether it be little. It's about stewardship. And stewardship and serving, they're an act of the will, an act of our will. We make a choice about whether or not we are going to serve. We make a choice about whether or not we're going to be good stewards of the things in which God has given us. They're not, it's not determined by circumstances. So many times we think, well, if I had this or if I had that or if I had this opportunity or those means or those resources, then I would be a good steward. Stewardship and service start with right where we are. It's not about the circumstances we find ourselves in because stewardship and service is about love. It's about love. That's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the thing you love. Let me put it another way. Where your money is, there your heart will be also. And so we concluded Wednesday night, and this is important for today, by saying that faithful service and stewardship on earth is important because it reveals the re that the reality of heaven is already in us. And that's important for us, especially in this season, because we're coming into the time of the year where we're going to be asking you and challenging you, where is it that God has called you to serve? How is it that God has called you to take another step being faithful in stewarding the things that he has given you? And we're going to be talking about that as we go throughout this month. But to connect these two, I want you to understand what, what Jesus is saying here in verses 10 through 13. You can't serve God in money and the faithfulness statements he makes there and connecting what he's about to say. Uh, one of the most important principles in Scripture for me, and one of the things that's changed my perspective on how I see the world, probably more than any other statement, is simply this. It, it is what you believe about the future. What you believe about the future determines how you live today. What you believe about the future determines how you live today. And this can be implied, applied in so many different ways to our life to the way in which we think about the world in which we are living in, the way in which we think about ourselves, to, down to what we do day to day. What you believe about the future determines how you live today. And a lot of people say, well, I'm not really sure what I believe. Well, of course you do. Of course you know what you believe. At least you have a really good idea about what you believe. Because how you live today reveals a lot about what you believe about the future. A whole lot. And we're going to see this here in the text today as Jesus has this conversation with the Pharisees. Because while Jesus has turned his attention in Luke 16 verse 1 to his disciples, and, and he's talking with them about what it means to be faithful, about what it means to be a servant, about what it means to be a steward, the Pharisees are listening. And while they're listening, verse 14 says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things. While Jesus is teaching his disciples, the Pharisees are listening to how he's talking about servanthood, how he's talking about uh, stewardship, how he's talking about faithfulness, and they're listening to every bit of it. And the Pharisees have a problem. And the problem that the Pharisees are having here in Luke 16 is that they are missing the gospel in a few particular ways. And their reaction to Jesus' teaching reveals that they're missing the gospel. And so verse 14 says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Notice that. They ridiculed him. 
The first way in which the Pharisees are missing the gospel here, the text is very clear. They are lovers of money, Luke puts it. Lovers of money. There's a difference between the need of money and the use of money and loving money. And anytime we read a text like this, we should ask the question, am I a lover of money? Does money have that kind of grip on me? It's a really good question. Well, think about the nature of love. You see, to love someone or something involves both passion and perseverance, doesn't it? Love involves both passion and perseverance. And many times in our world today, the way we talk about love, we talk about love and we reduce it down to just a feeling, right? It's just a feeling. And so most of the time we talk about love in the passion category, but it's also perseverance. That's why we use words like devotion. When you're devoted to something, you continue to move in that something's direction. And so when we love something or we love someone, we love them, and in one sense it's kind of easy. It comes easy to love them, but in another sense, we have to push through when times are hard so we can stay devoted to the thing in which we love. And so to love money is to yield to its power in moments when it's easy, but also to yield to its power in moments when it's hard or we find it hard. And at its core, a love of money, as Jesus is talking about it with the Pharisees, at its core, the love of money reveals something very, very particular about a Pharisee's heart and about our hearts. And that is when we love money, when we serve money more than God, what it reveals is a lack of trust in God's provision. In particular, is future provision in our life. You see, when we love money, we do one of two things. We either hold on to as much as we can, or we spend as much as we can. But both point to a root issue of loving money. We can love money and try to hoard it, right? Try to build up the bank account, try to build up retirement money or contingency money or whatever it may be because we're afraid we're going to run out one day, right? We're worried about the future. Or we can spend as much as we get because we want to spend it now because we're not sure if we're ever going to get to spend it in this way again. But both reveal a deep inner sense of a love for money. And so we can find ourselves saying, you know, we're going we're gonna to spend that much on a vacation because we're not sure if we'll ever get to do that kind of trip again. Then you look up 10 years later and you've taken five trips that look the same. But what that reveals, though, is that we believe that... that, that that God's resources are somehow limited. And so we either have to get as much as we can get now in our life and keep it in the bank, save it, or we're going to spend it like crazy because we may never get to do that again. So Jesus looks at the Pharisees in verse 15. He says, and he said to them, he knows what's going on in their heart. He says, and he said to them, you are those who justify themselves before men, but God knows your heart for what is exalted among men is a, an abomination in the sight of God. The first problem they have is they lo they're lovers of money. The second problem they have is they, they're justifying themselves. They're justifying themselves. You say justifying themselves about what? About loving money. That's the context. 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And then he says, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. He says the love of money, not money itself, 
Money doesn't do anything. We use it. The love of money, it, 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 all, it leads to all kinds of evil. Some people, he says, have even wandered from their faith. They're literally walking away from the faith. And not only that, they're piercing their own lives with many griefs because of it. Its roots go deep. And its roots go so deep into our life, what it does, the love of money takes those things in which God created in our life to be beautiful, and it completely distorts them. The love of money takes those things in our life that are meant to have meaning and purpose, and it distorts the original intention. They lose their original intention or purpose. That's what the love of money does. It corrupts us to the core. It leads to all different kinds of things in which it manifests itself in our life in so many different ways. It's like you take the person who gets the new job and they believe that God opened the door for them and that, that God has provided just what they need and the salary is in the range that they need. And then all of a sudden what begins to creep in is, you know, if I had a little more my status in society would be different. If I had a little more, I'd get to do this or do that, or I'd be able to keep up with whoever out there that I want to be like. And all of a sudden, that new job that God opened the door for and the opportunity that he has called you to and gifted you to, all of a sudden, uh, it's just not enough. And we find ourselves chasing the elusive more. And the thing to which you feel called to, now it's just a paycheck. It's a paycheck in which you compare to others' paychecks. Money has a way of just getting in and doing that. And the consequence is, is we find ourselves, like the Pharisees, justifying ourselves constantly. Justification for the end goal of the pursuit of self-promotion or advancement. Again, so we can get more. And again, we're chasing the elusive category of more. It's exactly what they were doing in the first century. It's exactly what we do today. Everybody do this. Mm -hmm. It is. Oh, and it's so addictive just to get more. And what we forget is what Jesus says here. Is that our hearts are absolutely naked before the Lord. He sees all of it. There's nothing that can be hidden. You see, God not only sees the action, he sees the, motiv uh, the motivation behind the action. He sees all of it. And so we spend ourselves justifying this chase after more, and we try to deflect people's attention off our selfish actions to a false narrative about our motives. That's what we do. People will see our actions and our pursuit of more, and so we've got to justify it. So we have to justify it on a motive level because we don't want to change our actions because our actions could get us more. Are you with me? Two people are with me. That is fantastic. So Jesus says this in verse 16. He says, you need to know the law and the prophets were until John. That's John the Baptist. He was the last Old Testament prophet. He says, since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. He's reminding him there's this thing called good news. We'll get there in a moment. He says, though, and everyone forces his way into it. You see, when we serve money... When we love money more than we love God, we walk around justifying ourselves, justifying our motivations, justifying our actions, trying to justify all of that, and then we find ourselves forcing ourselves or forcing a relationship with God. Because we really don't serve Him, we serve money. 
It's the thing that dictates what we do and when we do it. That's really the thing that we serve. Another way of saying this is that when your true God is money, we fall into performance. And there's two kinds of performance, by the way. There's religious performance and there's irreligious performance. Religious performance is the thing that the Pharisees would have fallen into. And, and, and we, we all know this. this is when people try to perform and be good enough for God and, you know, that kind of thing. Irreligious performance is a little different, though. You see, religious performance is the show that we put on to project an image of being a righteous person. But irreligious performance is the show we put on to project the image that we're not self-righteous, even though we say we're a believer. You see, religious performance is about coming off as spiritual, even otherworldly. But irreligious performance is when we try to play the role of a cool Christian, where we want people to think, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not judgy. It's still a performance. We just think we're superior in our idea, don't we? So you can fall into the trap of religious performance, trying to do good things to perform for God, or you can fall into the trap of irreligious performance, where you're trying to perform for other people. And the result is we have this constant striving to be good enough. Again, either be good enough for God or good enough in the sight of other people. And when we love and serve money, though, this is where it leads. When we love and serve money, we live our lives trying to justify ourselves, justify what we do, justify the motives behind what we do, and we live our lives trying to perform for someone. Either perform for God... But most of the time, it's performed for ourselves or performed for others. Because the money gives us the tool to build the stage for the performance. And this is our problem. Jesus goes on and says in verse 17, You know, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now that statement, given what he's talking about here, it seems out of place. He's talking about love of money. He's talking about justifying ourselves. He's talking about performance. And then he says, you know, heaven and earth, it's easier for them to pass away than for one part of the law. You say, what's that all about? It's about the gospel. It's about the gospel. You see, satisfaction for the law, God's moral law, has to be given. You can't have a God of love without the moral law being satisfied, actually. See, we think if God is love, then he does away with the law and kind of overlooks our sin. No, no, no. That's not love, by the way. You you have to have the law being satisfied, hang with me, if you're going to have a God of love. You see, the moral law is God's ideal for how we live life. The moral law is God's ideal for how we live in a relationship with him and how we live in a healthy and happy relationship with other people. The moral law. The problem with the moral law is that you can't live up to it. And I can't live up to it. And the person sitting on your right can't live up to it. And the person sitting on your left can't live up to it. Matter of fact, you might want to look at them and just tell them you can't do it. You know? You just, just go ahead and burst their bubble. Good. Just because we can't live up to the moral law, though, does not mean it's irrelevant. 
Just because we can't live up to God's standard, just because we can't live up to that place in which God has called us to live in relationship with him or relationship with others does not mean it's irrelevant. But here's the thing. You know how some people will misquote the Bible and say, God will not put more on you than you can bear? You know that's a misquote, by the way. The truth is, God does put more on us than we can bear. And we see it right here. We can't bear the weight of the law. We cannot bear the weight of God's moral law, his ideal for human flourishing and living in a world with harmony with others and with him. We actually can't do it. And that's the point. And that's the point that Jesus is making to the Pharisees. He says, God's not going to overlook his law, but there is this gospel. There is this kingdom that you can be a part of. But we have to come to that place where we realize that, that we cannot do it on our own. We can't live up to God's standard, and that's important because only when we get to the place where we realize, where we stop performing, and we realize we can't live up to God's standard, that's the place when we finally admit that we need a Savior. And the result of this is that we live right now with a moral issue, a moral problem, and the problem is simply we cannot live up to God's standard. And it's universal. We can't love our neighbor the way God has called us to love our neighbor. You can't love your family the way God has called you to love your family. You can't love your friends or your co-workers the way God has called you to love your friends or co-workers. You can't live for him and serve him the way he's called you to live and serve for him. And neither could the Pharisees. And that's why Jesus is saying, this is not going away, guys, but it has to be dealt with. And the solution that Jesus is revealing is that he is revealing himself as the solution to our performance-based way of living. He's revealing himself as the solution to all of our justifying that we do. He is revealing himself as a solution to our love problem, the love of money issue in our lives. Jesus is revealing himself as the one who is going to take our place and therefore take our punishment for all that we deserve because we are lawbreakers. We can't live up to the standard. And what he's saying is that the good news, the gospel, is that I'm here to die in your place, to receive. People don't like this today. It just all happens to be all in the Bible. On Jesus, the whole wrath of God is going to fall on the cross because he's dying in our place. He's going to die a cosmic death and receive the sin of the world. And then he's going to be resurrected so that we can be set free from not only the stain of sin, but from sin itself, both now and also in eternity. And again, this is a God of love. You cannot, you cannot have a God who just overlooks anything that is not love and he truly love. But he says, in my son, I'm going to satisfy the law once and for all. And Jesus' sacrifice is the solution to all of our problems. And let me put it this way. Jesus' sacrifice is the solution to all of our fears. Because the fears that we have come from our problem, our root moral problem. You see, our love of money is based in fear. It's fear that we won't have enough at some point in the future. Our desire to justify ourselves is based uh, in this fear that someone will look down on us. 
Our drive to perform is based on the fear that we're not good enough and we're never going to be good enough. But when we understand that fear has been taken away because of what Jesus has endured for us, that's when we're set free to live the life he has called us to live. And only then, only then, this is the gospel message. This is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. You have a problem. You have a problem. Love of money, love of blank. Put anything you want to in there. And because of your love of blank, you walk around trying to justify yourselves. Justify your true motives when you're really just trying to mask them and hide them. And so you're performing. You're performing for God and you're performing for other people Jesus says, but the law is going to be satisfied in me. In me. It's going to be dealt with in me so that you don't have to live that way. That's why Romans 5, 8, 9 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Because Jesus took it all on himself. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, all the fear that we live with in the present, also in the future, is taken away in Christ. It's taken away because he's put himself in our place when he went to the cross. He took on himself all of that wrath and then was raised On the third day, and that same spirit of resurrection lives in us. What you believe about the future determines how you live today. If you believe that the gospel is true, and you believe that there's a future reality, not just tomorrow that he'll provide, but he's going to provide ultimately in eternity, it completely changes how you live today. When you believe that Jesus has not only died for our sins... Because we couldn't live up to God's standard, but also he's been resurrected. And one day we're going to see that in his fullness in new heavens and new earth. That changes everything. It even changes the small worries and fears that we have going on in our heart and mind, even as we were walking in the doors this morning. All of that begins to change. And the only place that we can break the power of money, since that's in the text, in our life, there's only one place for that. Only one place where we can break that power where we stop overextending ourselves. There's only one place where we can stop justifying ourselves. There's only one place where we can stop having this emotional roller coaster of performance in life, trying to perform for God or perform for others. There's only one place where that is satisfied, and that is in Christ alone. That's what we sing about. The problem is half the time we really don't believe what we sing, do we? You know the song, In Christ Alone? In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, the gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. There in the ground His body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth on glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. That's what the Pharisees were missing. 
That's what they were missing. Their view of God, their view of the future was all about, it led them to this place of being all about, what can I get now? And it was wrecking their faith. And I would dare say there are millions upon millions of Americans today, even ones that go to church every Sunday, where the love of money is wrecking our faith and causing grief in our life to the point we are so distracted from the one who can take it all away. And my prayer for us as we read these words of Jesus that we come to this place where we say, I actually believe the gospel. That in him, the power of cancel sin is actually broken over me. May that be so. May that be so. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you. Because in your son... All these things that we fear, all these things that weigh us down, they are, they are broken. They are canceled. So, Lord, may we live in that reality now. May we be so gripped by the gospel of Jesus that it actually saves us now. There's no other place we can go. There's no other place that offers this kind of freedom, Lord. But you do, and you're offering it now. So may we receive it now. In Jesus' good and powerful name, and everybody said.